My name's Andy, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome to Lakeview Church. Glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We are going to continue our series through the letter of First Peter. And while you're finding First Peter chapter 3, uh, let me tell you the story. I heard a pastor recently uh, shared a story on a podcast I was listening to. And as he was talking about this, I realized that I myself had a very similar experience when I was in seminary. And so I'll share with you my experience. Um, but I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. That's where I, I did my seminary training. And uh, in Moody, in, most of my classmates at Moody were international students. Uh, it was a very diverse community in which to study God's word. We had students from Kenya, from Nigeria, from uh, South Korea, from China, from India, uh, all over the world, uh, students. And it was, a, it was really a neat experience. And there was one time that we were having a class. The professor uh, was from India. And uh, we were talking in the class with a couple of other Indian students. And, and one of them was sharing about how he had met his wife. He met her on their wedding day. And of course, those of us in the class that were white Americans, we couldn't process this. Like, what do you mean? You didn't know your wife before your wedding day? He said, no, I'd never seen her before until she walked down the aisle. And then I met her, and that was the first time. It was an arranged marriage. And, and uh, we, we said, well, gee, that seems really, really weird. Isn't that sad that you had to endure that uh, arranged marriage? He said, no, it's not weird or sad at all. He said, we've been happily married for several years. We have two beautiful children. He said, we love one another. It didn't matter that we, that we didn't go through the whole dating process that like Americans do. And in fact, in fact uh, he said, it doesn't seem weird to me at all. What seems weird to me is the way Americans do it. Because he said, arranged marriages in India have existed 10 times longer then the United States has been a country. For over 3,000 years, marriages have been arranged in India. And he said in India, divorce rates are way lower than in the United States. And in India, uh, married people report much higher levels of happiness in their marriage than married people in the United States. So he said, what seems weird to you actually seems pretty good to me. Happier marriages, lower divorce rates, and this is an institution that's been going on for thousands of years. Whereas in your country, what you guys do seems really weird to me. You have to find your soulmate from the 8 billion people on the planet, and hopefully you get the right one, and you're not very happy, and most of the time it ends in divorce. He said, that seems really weird to me. Now, I don't tell you that story because I want to uh, endorse arranged marriages, <laughs> I tell you that story because what seemed weird to me did not seem weird to my colleague from another culture. What seemed odd and strange and weird to me only seemed odd and strange and weird because of the cultural context that I grew up in. And so what seemed weird to me seemed totally normal to him. And what seemed normal to me was totally weird to him. In the letter of 1 Peter today, Peter is going to say some things that seem to us to be completely and totally weird. And in fact, of everything that we've talked about in Peter's letter so far, what he says today is the most countercultural, the most in your face, the most against the grain of our cultural context of anything that he said so far in the letter. So it'll be easy to read the verses that Peter says and say, that's outdated, that's patriarchal, that's chauvinistic, let's turn our brains off and check it out the door, right? But I wanna encourage you not to do that. 
Because what seems weird to us might only seem weird to us because of the cultural context that we've grown up in. And maybe Peter has some wisdom about marriage to share with us today from 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me summarize really where he's come with the letter so far so that we can kind of be all on the same page with his instructions from 1 Peter 3. Peter's main question that he's dealing with in this letter, and this is the question of our series, is this. How do we live as Christians in a non-Christian society? I think it's pretty clear that we live in a society that is not living like Christ, right? And so how do we live like Christ in a world that doesn't want to live like Christ and doesn't want us to live like Christ? How do we do that? That was the situation that Peter's audience found themselves in, and that's the situation that we today, 2,000 years later, find ourselves in, and so this is the question. How do we live as Christians in a non-Christian society? And Peter begins addressing that question by talking about our identity. Before he tells us how to live, he spends a good chunk of this letter telling us who we are, because who we are determines how we live. So he begins the letter by telling us that we are elect exiles. We have been chosen by God, sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to Christ or to become like Jesus in every way. We're elect exiles. Now, living like Jesus puts us at odds with a culture that does not live like Jesus. And so when we say, this is what I believe, this is how I'm going to live, culture says, I don't like that. And people in general don't like those who are different, and they will treat us accordingly as exiles. That's why Peter says we're exiles. Uh, We're chosen by God, we're elect exiles, chosen by God to become like Jesus in every way. That's who we are. And he says, don't let that get you down, because the second statement of identity is that we have been born again into a living hope. We have an eternal inheritance. We have a coming salvation that is ready to be revealed when Christ returns. Right? So that living hope that we've been born again into will sustain us even when the culture around us ridicules us for living like Jesus. Even when they reject us, even when they make fun of us, even when they treat us like exiles, we will be sustained through that by the living hope we have in Christ. He goes on to say, not only are you born again into a living hope, but being born again means that we are children of God. In fact, we are called to be holy because our Father is holy, and we want to be like our Father. Now, a lot of people today say, uh, why does God care about my holiness? Why does God care so much about what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom? Isn't it more important that I get out and help people that are hurting and in need? Well, it is important to help people that are hurting and need, but God does also care about how we live, even in the privacy of our own bedrooms. God cares about how we live because he loves us and he wants to redeem us from a pointless, meaningless way of life that only ends in death. What we do matters. And God cares about where we end up. And so he cares about how we live and who we are. He also cares about our holiness because not only does he love us, he loves the world. He wants to rescue and redeem the world from a meaningless way of life that ends in death. And God's plan to redeem the world is to send redeemed people into the world. 
I want you to remember that, that phrase because that is going to be a major focus for Lakeview Church this year. God's plan to redeem the world is to send redeemed people into the world. We cannot address the problems in the world around us unless we first address the problem of sin in our own lives, and our own hearts. And once that has been dealt with and we are in right standing with God, then we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to work together to address the problems around us. God cares about our holiness because he wants to redeem us and he wants to send us as redeemed people into the world to rescue the world. Peter goes on to say, not only are we the children of God, but we are also a royal priesthood. Uh, That means, number one, that we have direct access to God through Christ. You don't have to go to some other priest to access God. I am not a priest. You do not have to come to me to access God. You have God the Holy Spirit living in your physical body right now if you are a follower of Jesus. So we have direct access to God through Christ. That's what it means to be a priest. And the second thing that it means to be a priest is that we are God's representatives to the people around us who don't yet know Christ as God and Savior. There are people in your family, there are people in your workplace, there are people in your neighborhood, there are people at your school, there are people all around you that do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and God has sent you as a priest to be his representative to them. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. All these are statements of our identity that Peter has been building through the first two chapters of his letter, and he summarizes that identity like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. This is who we are in Christ. This is our identity. And Peter's been building that identity because who we are determines how we live. Now, in verse 11, the very next verse, he shifts gears and he begins to tell us how to live out of that identity. What is it? That's who I am, but how do I live that way? And here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's going to shift gears now and spend the rest of his letter explaining to us how to live out of this identity that he's talked about in the first two chapters. Last week we saw that he gave us uh, three different institutions. In verse 13 he said, Be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And then he gave us three examples of human institutions. Gary talked about two of them last week. We're going to talk about the third one this week. The first human institution he tells us to be subject to is the government. And he says Christians should be model citizens. The second one is the workplace, and he says Christians should be model employees. And then the third institution that he gives us as an illustration is the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage, and that's where it picks up in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Now, he begins talking in marriage by talking to the wives. So what I want to do is I want to invite a wife 
to come and share with you Peter's words to the wives. And I'm gonna ask Stephanie Martin, our worship director. Normally, Stephanie's the one up singing and leading us in worship, but this morning, she's going to talk about God's words to wives from 1 Peter chapter three. Good morning. I might be a little bit nervous. <laughs> I'm gonna dive right into the word because there's not a whole lot of time this morning. First uh, Peter 3, one through six says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay, well, my name is Stephanie, and I've had the privilege of being a wife for 13 years, going to be 14 in just a couple of months. And actually, today I get to enter into the category of mother of a teenage boy. It is my oldest son's birthday, or my oldest child's birthday today, which is really fun. Um, and so I admit this morning that I've only been a wife for 13 years, which is some time, but there are others of you in this room that have been wives for a lot longer. And so what I bring to you this morning, I bring to you a sincerity of heart, a lot of prayer, really good conversation with my wonderful husband, Bo, and with Andy too. And, um, and I just pray that God will bless it this morning. And the thing that is deeply burning in my heart for all of you wives is that it's a really good thing to be one, and God always intended for it to be so. And I think it's easy this morning to acknowledge that we live in a time where our culture has a lot to say about what it may or may not mean to be a man or what it may or may not mean to be a woman and certainly how that applies to marriage and what should marriage be. This is a lot of opinions and a lot of times they come in hot and a lot of times they come in angry. And so we acknowledge that this morning that as we look into the word, we've got that noise going on in our minds, probably a little bit. And then we also acknowledge that there's other cultural noise which comes from our church tradition and how we've seen marriage modeled out here amongst each other, how we've heard it taught throughout history in different denominations, how these rules and roles were applied. And so we bring also that to the table. And that makes this a really complicated text to dive into. And so when I was studying for it, I kept getting stuck on the words like be subject. Like I was like, that's not my favorite word. You know, I don't really like it. And then when Peter's describing a quiet and gentle spirit, I was like, well, why not bold and assertive? How about, how about those words? Or why when we talk about Sarah and Abraham, why does he give her praise for calling him Lord? Because I really don't wake up in the morning like looking forward to calling Bo master or Lord, like, yes, master, I'll make your pancakes. Like, that's just not something. And we didn't even talk about verse 7 yet, which Andy will talk about, which refers to us as the weaker vessel. And all of these things with all of the cultural noise around us can seem at first glance really, really offensive and hard. And I think if we're really honest, women, that if we get past that initial reaction, our, our real fear is that if we really look into the word of God at who he is, what if we don't find something that we like about him? Or what if we find his character to have ill motive towards us as female? 
but I'm incredibly confident that as we move on really fast this morning, that we're actually going to find his heart for us is really, really good. Really, really good. All right. First Peter 3, 1 through 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. So we're just going to rip the band-aid right off and go straight to the word be subject because that's a tough word. And what it means in the, in the Bible dictionary, it means a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. This is an incredibly powerful word, actually. And there's been a little bit of feeling in the air, probably if you've heard these passages taught before, that this idea of subjection or submission tends to feel like this passive thing. But here we see it's actually a really proactive thing. It's a a way that we as wives carry our dignity in our marriages. And this voluntary attitude of giving in does not mean that we give in every time always. It just means that we're willing to when it's necessary and important to. Does that make sense? It's kind of silly to think that in human relationship there wouldn't come a time when we need to submit to one another. The Bible is full of uh, commands to do that. All right, so what this word does not mean, because that's helpful, it does not mean doormat. It does not mean for women to be a doormat. It does not mean that women are powerless, opinionless, personalityless, void of preference, or meant to be taken advantage of, especially not when you read words like assuming responsibility and carrying a burden right, in, right woven into the definition. This is a very, very, very positive word. How many of you have seen my big fat Greek wedding? Has anybody seen that movie? I know it's a little older now, but I used to love it. I thought it was hilarious. There's a scene in the movie where the grandma, I think she's the grandma, where she's like, yeah, the the husband might be the head, but the woman's the neck. And she can turn the head whichever direction she wants it to look. And we kind of laugh and we kind of giggle, but it's because... As women, we know sometimes it's easy when we don't believe that submission actually works. It's easy to reach for other things like manipulation or control or nagging or mothering or being combative or even independence. And just a quick word on independence. That's a word we kind of highly value in America. And I don't know about you, but I learned from little girl on, like, you do not want to be dependent on anyone else. You know? It's like you, you, you learn early on that if you put yourself in, an, in a dependent position, that you run the risk of someone else completely and totally ruining your life. Except for, for us as exiles living according to the kingdom rules, This is something that we're called to do. Christian life is described throughout the New Testament over and over and over as interdependent upon one another. We need each other's gifts, graces, spiritual gifts. We need each other as the body of Christ to fill out what it means to look like Christ on this earth. And in that heartbeat, women, it is super okay for you to be very dependent on your husbands. It's actually good and right because husbands need us too. It goes both ways. And I just, uh, really quick, have you ever played a game when you were a kid? You ever remember cheating? <laughs> I may be telling on myself here, but like your mom's at the stove and she's stirring the macaroni and cheese and you like 
peek at the cards that are coming next in the sequence or your dad's in the bathroom and you're like switching out your monopoly values for higher values. And then if you go on to win the game, do you feel like a winner? No, you don't feel like, well, if you have any character, you don't feel like a winner. And that's what this verse kind of points at. Like when you resort to manipulation or control outside of this idea of a cooperative heart and a cooperative spirit with your husband, no one wins. He loses, you lose, everybody loses. And this is the way we're taught to win, right, in our marriages with each other. And just a really quick note to women who might be sitting in here that believe and your husband maybe isn't there. Peter's actually writing this to encourage you to keep living godly lives. What he's saying here is that the way that you live your life in your home actually carries so much power, it can get his attention for the Lord. And so I just encourage you this morning to keep on living your life in a godly way. <laughs> that word actually means the, the conduct. It's actually really super cool. In other translations, it translates as conversation. And it's this idea that Peter actually brings us. He says it more, uh, more than half of the times that it appears in the New Testament. And it's this concept that as we live our lives... And it's like living out a conversation. And King James says it like, if your husband won't obey the word, don't win him by the word, but win him by the conversation of your life. And the implication is that when we live according to the way God has it designed, that our lives speak for themselves. And you might be able to be persecuted for it, but you can't be argued against with it because it's godly and pure and reverent. That's an amazingly powerful thing for us as women. <laughs> All right, so point number one for wives, even if it's difficult, our attitude is essential in marriage, in a healthy marriage. And really, it's just this innermost part of us that's willing to cooperate and even willing to give in when necessary. Okay? All right, let's move on to point number two. First, uh, Peter 3, 3 through 4, uh, 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So point number two for us wives this morning is our focus should be on the internal, which is also the eternal. These two verses, when I read them, I don't know, I just feel relief cover me. Because also within the cultural noise around us is so much emphasis for us women on the external. There is so much value placed on the size of our bodies, the clothes that we wear, how much money is in the bank, the adventures we may or may not be able to live. And it's a lot of pressure, this external thing. And so Peter's doing us a super solid favor by reminding us that it's actually the inner hidden person of the heart that matters and that is precious to God. And what I think is so incredibly powerful about the, the two words that he uses, this gentle and quiet spirit, as the, that the word gentle is actually the same word as meek that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's saying, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So when we function in this way, ladies, we're functioning in a state of blessedness as said by Jesus Christ. And it's also a word that he uses to describe himself. So let us be like Christ in this inner place of our hearts. And the word quiet is my absolute favorite because it doesn't look like what it means it would look like. It actually means an inner place that is peaceable, like still waters. It means undisturbed. 
This is a picture of an incredibly confident woman and strong woman that she knows who she is in Christ so much that she would walk in meekness and gentleness and humility and that she would also walk in an undisturbed way. And if we're really honest, women, when our attention is on the external things, the bigger house or the wardrobe or the next size weight loss, whatever it would be, that's when we get the most disturbed. That's when we're at our weakest, when we're distracted. And that's usually typically when we resort to things like manipulation, nagging, mothering, smothering, control, complaining, whining. It's usually from that place of inner disturbance so that we do that. And so this is an incredibly rewarding thing to be told, hey, let that go. Focus on the intern, internal because we know that the word says the outward is fading away, but the inward person is being renewed day by day. And ladies, that means that inside of us is a smoking hot model of a woman that just gets more beautiful day by day by day. And if we're honest, that godliness inside of us is actually what our husbands are attracted to. What they actually want us to become is deeply confident in who we are in Christ because then they have someone to live in a great partnership with, right? All right. <laughs> Last point, 1 Peter 3, 4 through 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's easy to think that the emphasis here is Sarah calling Abraham Lord, <laughs> but it's actually on this, the women who hoped in God. And that's what makes all of this work together because the word is incredibly clear that whoever puts their hope in God will never be put to shame. And the world has us thinking that if we submit, if we act in that way, that we're gonna be made a fool of. It's literally the lie that's right there, right? But this is the word of God saying, if we put our hope in God, everything is made right in that place. Because if we put our hope in God, we get to see him come through for us. And it's kind of that old question of like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does the submission come first or does the hope in God come first? And my conviction is that they both work together. The more that you submit, the more you experience the hope of God and the more that you put your hope in God, the more that you get to experience his goodness. And a way that I've seen that work out in my own life is that early on in my marriage, and I'm, I've still got a long ways to go, so I'm not trying to pretend like I don't, but early on in my marriage, uh, the way that we would spend money gave me great anxiety. And it was one of those places that had a real struggle inside of me. And so we would have conversations and maybe I wouldn't like how, how we did it or I would be in very much afraid, you know. But the reality was 10 years later or more that I have witnessed the goodness of God, the practice of putting my hope in him. And you know what I've come to find out? He takes care of all my needs according to his riches and glory. And so you know what this does for me as a wife? It gives me permission to keep on putting my hope in God instead of needing something from my husband that he can never give me because he was never supposed to be the answer to all of my problems or the provider to all my needs. And so this is an incredible invitation that we have not to put our hope in our husbands and all the flaws, but to put our hope in God. And as we put our hope in God and trust in him, all those lists that we might, if we're honest, have on why we shouldn't 
submit or why we shouldn't trust fade away because there is no list against God. Absolutely none. All right. So in summary, when we live our lives with a, a voluntary attitude of cooperation and giving in, uh, we, when, when we live out our powerful godly lives that speak for themselves and when we put our attention on our internal imperishable person of the heart and we put our hope in our loving God, that is what it means to be a biblical wife and it's a good thing to be so. And I don't want to forget this morning that all of these institutions that we talked about, uh, government over the last couple weeks, government and employment and marriage, they were all originally a way better design than anything that we can see today. And what God had intended from the beginning for marriage is a man and a woman fully one, in love, unashamed, co-laboring, side by side, bringing mutual benefit and blessing to the table, extending into family. And so when we part participate in his word and live this way, even when it's uncomfortable, we get to taste a little bit of what he meant and where he's taking us in the end. So it is a good thing today to trust in a God who made marriage that good. Can I pray for you, wives? Okay. Father, I thank you that you are actually really good, and I thank you that you and your heart, when we listen, you cut through the noise of culture, both the worldly culture and also uh, some of the church culture um, that has painted a, a wrong picture for us of your heart for marriage. And I just pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would heal marriages in this room. Would you empower your daughters to live godly lives from a place of inner beauty and strength that we would be women so conf confident in who we are in you that we would be undisturbed and that we would get more beautiful day by day by day, and that we would actually watch our husbands enjoy us and love us and cherish us and treasure us more and more as we become more and more like you. Would you bless us this morning? In your name, amen. Thank you, Stephanie. <clears throat> Stephanie and Bo have been married for almost 14 years. Corinne and I have been married for just a couple years longer, 16 uh, so I will echo her. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, I just want to make a few quick observations. These words are profoundly radical in Peter's context. If we read them in his context, they are so against the culture. And and. Let me, let's just make a few observations. First of all, likewise, husbands. What we see here is that in the institution of marriage, both husbands and wives are to be subject. This is really interesting that of the three institutions that Peter talks about, government, employment, and marriage, marriage is the only one that he gives directions to both parties. When he says that Christians should be good citizens, and be subject to the government, he does not say governors be good governors. Now, other places in the Bible tells governors to be good governors, but Peter doesn't, not here, right? And when he says servants be subject to your masters, he doesn't say masters, here's what you should do. Now, other places in the Bible does, do say that, that, but Peter doesn't say that here. Of the three institutions that he gives, this is the only one where he says wives be subject to your husbands, likewise, 
In the same way, likewise, husbands, here's your responsibility. So what we see there is that both husbands and wives are to be subject in the institution of marriage. And what that means is not, in, not exactly the same, but we subject ourselves in marriage differently. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few moments, right? Uh, another quick observation. They, it, it, go back to that verse, to the section that says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He's talking about wives here, and, and what I want to point out is that anyone who reads the, these verses in 1 Peter chapter 3 and assumes that Peter is demeaning women is misinterpreting the text. Peter is not demeaning women. In fact, this statement, they, the wives, are heirs with you of the grace of life, this is a radical elevation of the status of women. In that day, in that society, women were not allowed to inherit. Women could not legally inherit anything. They were not heirs of anything. But what Peter says, no, 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 no. In God's household, women, wives, have equal standing with their husbands. That is so radically different than everything else that was going on in that culture in that time. The Christian husbands who treated their wives as equals would have been ridiculed, mocked, scorned, laughed at. They would have been the butt of every joke, right? This is radically different, a fundamental departure from the cultural practice of the day. Peter's argument is that women have, wives have equal standing. He's elevating the status of wives in the marriage, in the Christian marriage. Now, having made those two observations, let's look at the third observation, going back to the verse. See where he says that we should show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, those words have been uh, a bone of contention among many women today. They, they read those and they see that as a negative statement, but that's not, all, that's not at all what Peter means. We've seen that already. He's not demeaning women in any way. In fact, he's elevating their status far above anything else that society was doing. The, the word vessel there literally means dish or jar. So what Peter is saying, he's, he's saying this, women are not inferior, they're priceless. Treat women the way you would treat a priceless vase, a, 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 a family heirloom, grandma's china, right? Treat women in a way that they, that they recognize their value, that they are priceless. See, these are the things that Peter is saying. Don't, don't manhandle your wife. Don't use your physical strength to intimidate her. Don't raise your voice and get all, and then make her do what you want her to do, to bully her into submission. No, handle her with, with kid gloves. Handle her with love and tenderness and compassion. Cherish her, treasure her. Treat her like the priceless gift that she is. That's what he's saying. They're not, it's not a statement that women are inferior. It's a statement that they are priceless and should be treated as such. Now, let's apply these three observations to how Christians should be husbands. In other words, here's how husbands are subject in marriage. And this is what Peter says, going back to that verse, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Right? Again, this is radically different than the culture of the day. Husbands in that day did not 
live with their wives in an understanding way. They did not show honor to their wives. They could physically abuse their wives. There was no legal consequences for that. Emotional abuse, verbal abuse, no legal consequences for that. Husbands could, could go out and commit adultery anytime they wanted with anyone they wanted. There were no legal consequences for that. If a woman was caught in adultery, she was killed. Right? So husbands just basically did whatever they want, wanted to. Their wives were considered their property. And Peter says that's not how Christian marriage is. Husbands, Christian husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Consider them your equal. Uh, let me summarize it like this. And I put this whole, whole thing up there for you to read. Husband, your wife is a treasure. Treat her as such. Love her, cherish her, honor her with dignity and respect. Protect her. Don't use your physical strength to intimidate her into submission. Instead, recognize her as your equal in Christ. God has called you, husband, to be the leader of your home. That means that you are the lead servant of your home. That's what it means to be the leader. It means to be the lead servant. Peter would have been with Jesus when Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. No doubt Peter was remembering this teaching. But Jesus called them, his disciples, he called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Peter was there when Jesus said that. And no doubt he was remembering those words when he was writing to the husbands. How are husbands to be subject in the institution of marriage? By using our leadership to serve our wives. By recognizing that our God-given role as the leader of our homes means that we are the lead servant in our homes. And here's what's at stake. Let's go back to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Here's what's at stake. We should do this so that your prayers will not be hindered. God cares so much about the way husbands treat their wives that he says if we don't treat them with dignity and respect and equality, then he won't answer our prayers. And, and as far as I could tell in my research this week, this is the only place where God says, if you don't do this, I'm not going to answer your prayers. That's a pretty big deal. I want my prayers to be answered, so I need to make sure that I am treating my wife with dignity and respect, that I am treasuring her as the priceless gift that she is, that I am using my role as the leader of our home to be the lead servant in our home. That's what it means. That's Peter's challenge to the husbands. He calls husbands to be the servants of their wives. Wives are called to submit to their husband's leadership and husbands are called to submit to their leadership role of serving their wives. That is how we are to be subject in the institution of marriage. 
this is all great theory. Uh, what I want to do in the, the few minutes that we have left is I want to share an example of how this works in a real marriage. So I'm going to share an example, and then Stephanie's going to share an example, or maybe not, uh, <laughs> of how this, what, what does this look like in a real marriage? And again, I've been married 16 years, so I, if you've been married 60, I'd love for you to share examples of how this looks in your marriage too. Uh, but here's how, here's how it looks for Corinna and I. We recognize that uh, we're not always going to be on the same page when it comes to making decisions, especially big decisions that impact our family. So at the, at the end of the day, after we've talked about it, after we've prayed about it, at the end of the day when a decision needs to be made, somebody has to make the final decision. Corinne yields that final decision to me, whatever that might be, and she submits to the decision that I make. But I have to remember that whatever decision I make has to be the decision that is in her best interest, not the decision that I want to do, right? So here's a silly example. I love to fly fish for trout. When we moved up here, I wanted to buy an $800 sage fly fishing rod. And I said, oh, being a pastor is a stressful job. This will get me out on the stream. I'll be able to unwind, you know, and... And Corinne was not so sure that that was the best use of our family's financial resources. We talked about it. We discussed it. At the end of the day, she said, you make the decision. I decided, after talking with her, that maybe a less expensive Cabela's brand fly rod would be just as good. I can still get out and fish three times a year. <laughs> Because I have five kids. So anyway, I can still get out and fish. I don't need an $800 fly rod. I still catch trout sometimes, and I have a good time, right? Listening to my wife. Uh, here's a, an example that's maybe a little bit more uh, intense. Um, when we were moving from Pontiac, Illinois, to Stoughton, Wisconsin, and leaving Pontiac Bible Church to come here so that I could be the pastor of Lakeview Church, Corinne and I were praying about it, and we together did not feel like it was the right move for us to make. I don't know if, you, if those of you who were here five and a half years ago remember that, but we were supposed to come right after Christmas and meet the congregation and candidate and be voted on as the pastor. And we called like two weeks before we were supposed to come and, and said, I called Mike, Ma, and I said, I don't think we can come because God has not given us unity on this. And he said, well, maybe it's not, Maybe it's not no, maybe it's not now. And about six months later, God gave us unity and we did end up coming. And it was God, clearly God's will for us to be here. And what I've learned from that experience and from many other similar experiences throughout the marriage is this. If I don't talk to Corinne about any decision, big, big decisions that impact our family especially, if I don't make those decisions with her, I'm the biggest fool in the room. Because... Most of the time, when we are making a, a large decision that impacts our family, should we buy a, a new car? Should we move? Should we do this? What should we? When we're making those kinds of family impacting level decisions, we're praying about it. And here's what I found almost every time that God speaks his direction into it, he speaks to me through Corinne. I could go off by myself and I could spend a hundred hours of solitude and listening. I can fast every day for 10 days and God speaks to me through Corinne. 
So if I'm not listening to her, if I'm not talking with her, if I'm not including her in the decision-making process, I'm not hearing what God says that he wants us to do about that decision because he speaks to me through her. And so I've learned, sometimes the hard way, to listen to her, to engage with her, to understand what she's talking about. And that's what it looks like for us. She yields the example to me, and uh, the decision to me, and I submit that decision to whatever is best for her. I know that we're over time this morning, so I'm going to pray and we'll dismiss our service. Father, thank you for your word. This is a hard word for us in modern American society, but it is your word, and I believe it is the right word. It is the best word. It is the good word. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would plant that word deeply in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that you would bring blessing to our marriages as husbands love their wives and cry, and, and uh, wives love their husbands, and together we love our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace and have a great week.